Thank you, Aaron. Good morning, church. We're going to do scripture reading this morning. The passage is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'm sure you all have it memorized by this point, so if you just want to recite it with me, that's fine. If not, you can find it on page 1785 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Okay, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thanks, Becca. I want to thank you to those who um, can be responding to that call to give. Um, the elders are going to be considering over the next couple of weeks um, an invitation to participate in building an addition that's going to be a food distribution part of, um, of Lighthouse Church, just over here a little ways. Um, Latino families um, come from all over the county and slightly into other counties there to receive food during the pandemic and now. A lot of those families then put their kids in that Christian school. A number of those families have then become part of that church. It's one of the only food pantries that reliably has um, Spanish speakers for Spanish-speaking families, and we have an opportunity to participate in helping them build on so that they don't have to do it outdoors. So that's one of the sister churches. So the reason we are able to do this is because you, you, people who are part of this church, consistently give more than we need to keep the lights on and keep our staff in food and clothing. Because we have that excess, we're able to give generously to other churches. And um, there's a church literally one block away, um, End Times Ministry, where their pastor and their church has been the largest food distributor during COVID. They received full tractor trailer loads. They split them up and sent them to other places and was one of the largest distribution areas um, and so that's another church that's doing a lot of really great stuff. And I just want you to know that, like, you should feel good about supporting your church. You should feel good about that, like, you paid for those lights. That's a perfectly good thing. We use this building, and we do a lot of great work here. But the fact that this church is able to give sacrificially, if we bring our offerings to the Lord, truly for what God has blessed us with, our human capital and our financial capital, we should have a significant excess. I believe this church is actually capable of giving about double our budget. And that we could give away not just three hundred fifty or $400,000 a year to other works of the gospel who are helping people in this county. I think we could give away a couple of million. If we embrace the kind of sacrificial lifestyle Jesus would probably call us to. Okay, that's a little bit of a strong thing to drop on you there, but there it is. <laughs> um, I also want to honor um, the ons. Three minutes is not long enough to— um, to honor their service to this church. 
um, Sung Young in particular, um, interrupt what probably felt like an interruption in his life to come to Monona, live with his in-laws, embrace children and his new family before going back to do missions work, um, uh, to nobly do work, to provide for your family, and to live the honest, normal life, and to receive children is just as noble, and I want to honor you for what you've done as a husband, and I know you'll do as a husband as you go to be a missionary as well with your wife. So, um, All right, um, I have a, just a few minutes to preach this morning relative to wh- what I wished, and um, so this might feel like a little hold on to your butt, but we do have, uh, hopefully, um, ask me anything at the end of the service. So if, you ha- if, I, if a question comes to your mind, and just write it down, and you'll you text it in at the end of the service, or put it in the chat if you're watching online, and um, we'll go from there. But um, a lot's going to get compressed. I apologize. I, I think in webs instead of lines, and so there it is. The beginning of this passage makes very clear that we start with a kind of Christian romanticism, that the work of Christ isn't just to produce uh, certain thoughts in our minds. It is supposed to produce that. Verse 5 says, have in your mind the same as in the mind of Christ Jesus. So there's a mental structure of our beliefs and thoughts, but the passage begins in verse 1 with an emotional plea. If you really have come to Jesus, does that do anything for you? When um, Adam Kilgus, our preaching intern, came and showed me his sermon for Gateway Church two weeks ago, he said, he said, Nick, here's my outline. His outline was great. It's a great outline. Really, really focused on the passage. And I said, I said, Adam, this is a great outline. I said, but it doesn't do anything for me. He's like, I know it doesn't do anything for me either. We got to fix that. Because sermons shouldn't just be right, right? You, you, the scriptures are supposed to do something for you because God has done so much for you. And so like it ought to do something for you. And Paul's saying, does the fact that Jesus did these things for you do anything for you? And what does it matter, right? Do you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? Any comfort from being united in his love? Any sense of fellowship with God himself being spiritually with you as you walk in step with the Spirit through your life? Like these things are things you're supposed to have, and if you, if you don't have them, then we need to go back and preach the gospel to you all over again, right? Because you're supposed to have these kinds of resources of joy to motivate a life of the pursuit of godliness. And if you don't, when it comes to dying daily, it will be a drudgery rather than a joy. You'll see the most difficult things in life instead of seeing them as spiritual opportunities, ways in which you fight with courage towards love, what will happen is there'll be like things that are imposed upon you when you wish you could do something else that you'd like more. Especially things like concord or unity or humility or service. We won't be people who love those things and see life made up of those things. We'll see those things as impositions on us. Things we shouldn't have to do. Things that maybe even are abusive to us that we shouldn't have to deal with. I'm going to skip ahead. Otherwise, this is never going to get anywhere. One of the, one of the ways— um, I talked about this last week, right? We've, I talked about some things that you, people have done to sort of mess with their faith in their heads. And one is this idea of humility, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Now, that— is one of the hallmark foundational truths of Christian faith, right? Jesus' self-humility in the incarnation, his humility in accepting the crucifixion, his humility in speaking truth but not evoking power to persuade. The whole Christian faith wrapped up in the person of the Christ is an exposition of God's humility because he gives as an example his relationship towards us and ours towards him is rooted in humility. Otherwise, it can't be based in truth and therefore in love. And we cannot be formed unless we're willing to be taught and shaped, right? And yet, 
humility in its corrupt form can be abusive. It can be a way of, if, if somebody else uses the concept of humility to always be pushing you down so that you can't become a self in, in Christ or in yourself, it, it can be an inhibiting factor in which you don't really become an expression of the full image of God in all the ways you were intended. And so a lot of self-help literature, including the, the earliest self-help movies that we say, has, did anybody ever tell you when you were growing up to be humble? Like when you were like kind of expanding yourself into some space to figure out who you were, did they say, hey, and they, did they hammer you down like the nail that was up a little too high and say, you need to shut your mouth. Like you need to be humble, right? Now, one of the reasons why this is important is one of the most fundamental questions we have to ask ourselves in our own thinking is, what do we do to solve corruption? Like when, when something, when somebody's acting corruptly towards us, right? They're doing something that is in some sense truthfully wrong, but it also has an effect on us. We might, we might even go as so far as to call it abuse, right? Somebody's wielding something in a way that they shouldn't, corruption, and it's affecting us in a way it shouldn't, abuse. What do you do? Right? You can rebel. You can directly fight. You can humiliate the authority that the person has, like they shouldn't have it. You can attack the virtue itself, right? So if somebody's using power corruptedly, you can attack the power. Like, you shouldn't even have power. Power shouldn't be a thing. There shouldn't be any power anywhere with anybody, right? There shouldn't be any police. There shouldn't be any husbands. There shouldn't be any parents. There shouldn't be, it should be, we should be 100% egalitarian in every way. Two-year-olds should be able to decide how you spend the family money, not just you, right? Like, you can just, you can humiliate the concept. What do you, what do you do? And you see, for a lot of people, they feel like the right thing to do is to humiliate the virtue, the thing, but you see, that's fundamentally broken when it comes to Christian faith because, you see, Christians believe that evil is not the antithesis of good or an opposite existential reality. Like, we don't believe in dualism. We don't believe, like, there's, there's like this spirit in the world that is good, we call that God. There's this spirit in the world that's bad, we call that Satan. They're like 50-50. We're part of this, like, war that we don't know how it's going to turn out. No, Christians believe that evil cannot exist without creation. That evil is by definition the corruption of something that pre-existed it, that was in itself good. Power is good, tyranny is evil. Sex is good, adultery is bad. Wealth or prosperity is good, right? Greed is evil. Like it's every— all evils are a corruption of a preceding good, whether a preceding good in creation, a physical good, or an abstraction, a truth. And so humility, a created good, can be used corruptedly. And you see, the easy thing to do, because on one level, we want to we want to get rid of the corruption that hurts us, but what do we also want to do? We also want the freedom to participate in the corruption ourselves. Does that make sense? I don't want to be humble. I just want you to be humble, right? Like, I don't want you to misuse humility on me to tell me I can't be myself. So I, I can attack humility in you, but you see, if I can humiliate humility entirely and push you back and get to be whatever I want to be myself so I don't have to be humble, that's even better, and that's even easier. And I'm drawn to that as a human being. Right? That's what we might call deconstruction. I take apart the idea of humility entirely. I humiliate the whole thing so that no one would ever say to me ever again that I should be humble. Right? You see, what the Lord does instead is, is everything that's created is good. Like, if the Lord thought that way, we, none of us would be here. We'd all be dead or never have existed at all. There would have just been floods, 
and the creation of the world. No crosses. You understand? The whole reason we are here is because God, as Lewis says in, in uh, Pilgrim's Regress, is people say the best way to attack God is that he's evil. That's not the best way to attack God. He's, Lewis says the best way to attack God is to say God is a gambler. That's the best way to attack God. Because he's always gambling with humanity, trying to figure out if we can, if he can do something that we would respond to so that we would be redeemed. Why? Because his idea of what you do with corruption is you seek to redeem the good by separating it from the evil somehow. And when you're dealing with a creature of will, they have to accept that. So all of Christian redemption is God, is God like making a creation and seeking to separate or differentiate to redeem the thing that's corrupted. And you see, if you get that wrong in your head, instead of going through a process in moral problems of differentiating, what is the true good here? And what is the corruption of that good? And how do I push out the corruption? How do I go back to the purity of the thing itself and embody it well? What you'll do is you'll humiliate everything God has created for our good. You'll reject virtue as a whole. You'll fall into the person as merely an exertion of will. And when you are the self that way, it's just one self exerting itself on another self with their wills. Which is the definition of hell. It's not as literally conceived yet among us, but it could be more and will be ultimately in that place. Now, three of the things that can easily be corrupted, but that when Christ does something for us, we are emotionally and mentally drawn to the differentiation and to restore this, these beautiful things that really should exist. Three of those things that are fundamental and should ha- begin to happen immediately among the people of God is concord or real unity, humility, and service. Now, last week we talked about how concord can go astray, right? There are, we talked about three false kinds of like-mindedness, right? Mere-mindedness, you and I have to think exactly alike. Like, inordinate closed-mindedness, like the things that we hold fast and say, look, I can't move on this. It's the wrong things or too many things or everything we think we think, rather than a certain set of things that are solid. Or unhelpful open-mindedness, where we're like, we're trying to create a unity by everybody just accepting everything, which tends to create a lot of disorder, anarchy, and anarchy always leads to tyranny. Too much open-mindedness always re-leads back to the wrong kind of closed-mindedness. I don't know if you realize that, but that's what happens. But think about this. Think about modern American progressivism right now, right? I think it's as closed-minded as it's been in my adult lifetime. But when I was in college— it was seeking to be as open-minded as possible. That was only 20 years ago. Well, I don't know, probably more than that now, right? <laughs> but like when I, when I was like 18 and going to college and progressivism was like liberal campus life, it was still in the phase of tolerance. And it was like, no, we need to be way more open-minded than we are. It was like, it was still working expansively. But as it worked expansively, it realized, wait, there's a bunch of things we don't want to accept. But wait, if we don't accept those things, on what principle? And then maybe we want just these things, and maybe these people are our enemies, and maybe— And then it was like, closed, so closed-minded. You see, the wrong kind of open-mindedness leads to a kind of mental anarchy that will always swing back to a mental tyranny. The wrong kind of open-mindedness devours itself. The wrong kind of closed-mindedness is already self-devoured and ultimately breaks in the next generation when everybody's so open-minded because they reject that evil infertile closed-mindedness, right? Now, instead we're supposed to have a gospel concord, that not just the mental unity of 
certain doctrines of the gospel, but the emotional unity of desire to be connected with each other because we respect people's humanity even before we respect the ordering of their inter, inner mental theology. We want to be one with each other. We want to care about each other if the other person believes in Jesus. And that brother and sisterhood precedes our set of beliefs. Does that mean we accept everybody else's beliefs? No, but think about it. If you're a family member that you're rightly committed to as a family member has a belief that you don't agree with, don't you have a sense of internal moral structure where you're like, oh, I don't just treat them the way I might treat somebody. I might be tempted to treat somebody else who isn't my family. You realize there's something about the fact that they're family that affects the way you navigate the difference between you. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that when you come to Christ, the family is so sacred. Of, the family of Jesus is so sacred that no matter how you disagree with people, how much you disagree, how many matters are disputable matters, you are still drawn into the concord of family first, and you adjudicate or you deal with those differences with the preceding foundation of this radical spiritual family. And so therefore you can have concord even in disagreement, even in some relatively profound ones, because you've been encouraged by Christ. You've received his comfort and so on, right? The second is humility. That is, humility is a kind of self-forgetfulness that discovers, sees, and considers others. Now, humility, like any virtue, right, um, has its corruptions and its rejections, right? You can corrupt a virtue, or you can just reject a virtue altogether. In this verse, the apostle is mainly focusing on the rejection of the virtue, not the corruption. The problem is, because Christianity was so successful in the history of the world, we, that is Christians, flipped the morality of the world from this time period. So in the ancient world, virtue was rooted in the concept of strength. What made you strong enough to overcome everything and everybody so that you were at the pinnacle. That's why virtue, that's why Aristotle could write two books on virtue and not see that slavery was wrong. Right? Have you ever thought, how is that weird? He could say a slave is a tool. And then he could write some of the greatest writings on ethics and morality ever in the history of the world, and on virtue. And they still stand up today pretty well, except for a couple major blind spots. Like, how is that? And it's because he lived in a world in which morality focused on strength. And so sophrosyne, balance between excesses, was the fundamental nature of virtue. When Christianity came on the scene, mercy became the fundamental dynamic of Virtue, publicly, even, even in places where people didn't behave as Christians, but they, Christianity was like what everybody was haunted by, right? In Christendom, right? What happened was this idea that like mercy, you had to at least pay lip service to mercy. Mercy led rather than strength and brutality, right? Paul lived in a time where Roman and Greek ethics were still the mainstay. That is, strength was the focus. And that was how people tended to go off course. Here's the thing, because of that, we are all, whether you're Christian or not, we live in a world so haunted by Christianity that we all just assume the weak should receive deference. Be careful! Because we live in a time where some of the most secular among us seem the most, at least openly, verbally committed to the idea that the weak should receive our deference. The problem is, is that that's rooted in a profoundly religious idea. And when you get rid of the religion, it's, it's a question how much longer that morality can stand. Because when the morality of the world lived on myths other than the humility and humiliation of Christ, that was not the ethical intuition of human societies. Of any human societies. Now, 
because of that, we have to recognize, we have to see both the corruption and the rejection. Does that make sense? Both the corruption and the rejection. Because the corruption is a corruption of Christianity, and the rejection is the not knowing or having received Christianity, right? And so the rejection of humility is what Paul is talking about because he's trying to flip the pagan morality, which is what he calls vainglory. But the corruption— Oh, there's, because there's both, I'm sorry, there's both a corruption of power relative to humility and a corruption of honesty. The corruption of, of, um, power, I'm sorry, that's totally wrong. Oh, I, okay, sorry, there's two slides, okay. First, regarding honesty, the rejection of humility is vainglory, and the corruption of honesty is false humility, right? Okay, let me do humility and power. So, there so, Sorry, I'm confusing myself. <laughs> okay, right, okay, sorry, I skipped a slide. So regarding power, the rejection of humility is selfish ambition, right? I don't have to worry about you. I can just do whatever I want, right? So that's an action of power, and I'm rejecting the idea of humility. Don't tell me to be humble. I'm going to do what I want, right? Selfish ambition. But see, there's a corruption of the, Christ the Christian idea of, like, you should be humble. What's the corruption of that that causes us to reject it so that we become selfishly ambitious? And that is what I would just call servility. Sick of fancy also, but you know, we only have limited time right now. Now, relative to honesty, right, the rejection of humility is vainglory, which is what Paul says here. But within the Christian world, right, the corruption that causes us to move to vainglory is false honesty, or is false humility. Okay, so let's work through these quickly. Humility and power. One of the reasons why we are going back to paganism is because of the corruption of the Christian virtue in our practice and understanding. If you—if if our Christian understanding of humility is sufficiently corrupted, we, our children, and our children's children, and our neighbors will go back to paganism, which is humanity without revelation. There is no enlightenment, friends. Right? As Lewis predicted, and as we can see all around us if we have the eyes to see it, Enlightenment leads to a godlessness that leads back to paganism. Now, the corruption of humility then is servility. That is, not putting ourselves in right subjugation to right authority, but being servile in self-protection towards tyrannical authority. So in order for the authority not to hurt us, we cower and snivel and put ourselves in position and become servile to that tyranny so that it will treat us as well as possible so that we can get along and live well under what tyrannical power exists. That is as unvirtuous, as false, as evil, and as sinful as tyranny is. Tyranny is what people with power end up corrupting into, and servility is the way weak people are corrupted in relationship to power. Servility and sycophancy, right? And you can see this in relationship to, like, Daniel, for example. Daniel was not in a position of power relative to the emperor. And so if he was going to pray, he was going to get thrown in the lion's den. And he prayed anyway. Why did he pray anyway? Was he rebellious against a good authority? No. He was still humbly serving the only authority higher than the emperor. So because he had humility, he recognized he had no right— to disobey God. And so if the emperor, who is beneath God, tells him to disobey God, he still obeys the higher authority, which is God. 
Same thing with Peter, with Peter and John, right? When they get drawn into the Sanhedrin after Jesus' resurrection, they're preaching the gospel. And they say, listen, they whip them and they beat them. He said, look, there's more where that came from. Stop preaching the gospel. And they said, listen, you guys are going to have to decide for yourselves whether or not it's right for us to believe you and obey you rather than God. So that wasn't, that wasn't rebellion and it wasn't servility. It was humility. Listen, there's a higher authority than you. That's what I obey. That's all there is to it. You could do this as an atheist. Right? You could still believe that the truth, something that's true, is higher than an authority. Right? And some authority, some government could come in, or some, some person, some boss, some somebody could be like, you should do this. You're going to do this, or I'm going to make you pay. And you could say, listen, you're not higher than the truth. <laughs> the truth is out there. It exists. It's existed inter- eternally. It existed before you were born. It'll exist long after you're dead. Right? You're just a meat sack yelling. And I'm going to obey the truth. Now, it's harder to have the joy and the willingness to face martyrdom that could be necessary to do that as an atheist, because you don't have the promise of God Almighty that he will vindicate those destroyed for the truths in his sake. But you can still do it as a noble pagan, and that would be better than servility, and closer to divine virtue. Right? Um, I probably not need to not spend time on this, but uh, you can take a picture if you want. It's also on the slide notes. The dynamics of power are such that, like, if you're in power, you can fall either into tyranny, which is the corrupt use of your, overuse of your power, or remissness, the corrupt underuse of your power. Parents, right? We don't want to be tyrants. Sometimes we don't think about remissness, right? It's like the person who owns a dog but doesn't train it, and so the dog goes around biting people. He's remiss. Right? And see, if you're tyrannical, you are incentivizing servility, and servility incentivizes tyranny. If we as as citizens, for example, if we see tyranny growing somewhere in our church, in our family, in our marriage, in our country, in our world, and we say nothing, we just do whatever we need to get along and go along. That's not humility. That's servility. And it empowers that tyranny. Now listen, I understand that's a really difficult question. But listen, this question was behind the people in our church who wore masks and those who didn't. Right? There were some people who thought this was, a, this was an issue of concord. Right? And because we should seek a unity with our family and we should have deferential treatment towards them and to love them as we love ourselves, right? And because of that encouragement we have in Christ, I'm not going to put my own rights forward. I'm going to wear a mask to try to protect you because I don't know how much it does. I don't even know some of the dynamics of it, but I feel like it might be helpful, and it could be helpful for you, and I'm being asked to do it, and I can bring some unity if I do it, so I'm going to wear one, right? And there were other people that thought that that was servility, and the ethic of humility meant that this was a moment they initially needed to stand up and not be servile to tyranny and say, no, I'm not going to do it. Which is one of the reasons why I said in those days, you guys, this is probably falls under Romans 14, disputable matters. And we need to try to love each other and argue with each other and sort this out within the context of family, where we're so committed to each other, we can actually have an argument over the spaghetti, and we still love each other. And we sort out as best we can, and we might not know the answer. Right? But we would get to the third virtue, which was service, where we would try to serve each other. Right? Now, <clears throat> servility is not humility, but neither is rivalry. Neither is the rejection of humility altogether, and the selfish ambition where you just become bigger, and you do whatever you want, and everything's an exertion of will. Right? The apostles saying, no, one of the first things that happened is Jesus himself was not a mere exertion of will. 
And if we are comforted by him, we love him, we want to be like him, we cannot be mere exertions of will. And so we can't be ambitious selfishly. A lot more can be said about that, but we're going to keep moving. So if servility is passive self-protection in relationship to power, and sycophancy, which is like, I'm going to become—I'm going to come to a person of power and make myself indispensable, so that by—even though I'm weak and passive, I will connect myself to your power so that I have power through you. Even though I might tell lies, I'll tell you—I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. People talked about this. This happens in presidential administrations, right? When presidents do things that are crazy, you're like, why do they do crazy stuff? And the answer is because the people closest to them are telling them what they want to hear, and the president wants to hear that. And whether it's President Biden in relationship to inflation, whether it's President Trump in relationship to whether or not people think his tweets are fantastic. Like, the, one of the reasons why people, by people at the top, or President, or uh, Vladimir Putin, who thought he could just invade a Ukraine, it would go fantastic because his army was wonderful, right? Like, these people, why, do they, why are these people on the top so disconnected from reality? It's because they're surrounded by sycophants, and they're ruling over serviles. And if all of these people were virtuous, they were all humble, they would all tell the truth. They would do what was right. They would hold each other in this multifaceted accountability, and good would be produced. And if you're progressive, justice would be produced. And if you're conservative, prosperity would be produced. And that's why your politics will never fix this. And the gospel will, and we could then be family around that, and then argue about our politics. Right? That was not my—sorry. Thank you for making this like a, pres, like a state of the union. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so the word selfish ambition, when looked at at other places in the New Testament, is translated rivalry, disputes. So it's putting yourself forward in a way that pushes on other people. You're trying to make other people smaller so that you can be bigger. Rather than cooperating with other people, even sometimes in a competitive way, to make things bigger. I've seen this with like male interns on staff trying to get preaching gigs, but fighting to make each other better. There's a, ri there's a rivalry. There's like, not a rivalry. There's a, co there's a competitional camaraderie to try to preach better at these other churches they're going to. I saw this. There were these three women on, on staff, some of who are still on staff. Same age they came in. There wasn't a lot of places for them. They all wanted to move up. And they had this sort of like competitive camaraderie that they worked out through prayer and tears and stuff like that, but it never was rivalry. And so the church— did really well. They did well. All of them grew. All of them are in better fitted positions than they've ever been in in their ministries. They've grown as women and as mothers, and yet it was never really rivalry. It got close a couple of times, and they handled it because they pursued this. And that can happen in our homes and among your siblings and so on. All right, sorry, I gotta keep moving. There's a bunch about this in James you should read. All right. Um, what that means is that when Paul encourages us to humility, he's not saying power is bad or ambition is bad. Ambition is good. The desire to have an impact, to do something that matters, is good. God himself created all things because he had some ambition. He didn't need to be ambitious. He was already perfect. But he had a desire to impact that which was outside of himself, that something else would exist, that that thing would be good, that he would give consciousness and being and personality and, and pleasure and knowledge, and that he would expand his very self into other selves is something that was, you know, he was ambitious for, and he used his power to do it. And if power is bad, you should not exist. You exist because some power is good. 
and you exist, and your life is better than it would be worse, because many people have used power and ambition for the good. We should be greatly ambitious, or at least we can be greatly ambitious. And we can, in some cases, take hold of power. Listen, the world is not going to be a better place if every Christian says, well, there's some power there, so I can't take that. Or if every time a Christian is promoted to a place of power, because they don't want to become a tyrant, they become remiss. And so encourage rebellion rather than servility. Friends, we have—our thinking is so narrow. We have forgotten all the ancients' teachings, and we don't know wisdom. We have these tiny little concepts that people who got their undergraduates at journalism schools keep selling us on TV, and we have no idea how ignorant we are. We read books from 150 years ago, we can barely understand them. So, therefore, because power and ambition are part of creation, therefore inherently in themselves good, but they are prone to corruption, and therefore they require reform, vigilance, and the only way you can be reforming and vigilant is if there is virtue, and virtue in this particular sense of godliness, because it's not enough to just know what's right. You have to have the heart that is formed and willing to do it. Right? Okay. I should split the sermon up again, but I'm just not gonna. Um, therefore, humble ambition is productive, cooperative, and even competitive. Its, o- its opposite is rivalry. Humble ambition acts justly in its ambi- ambitions. It neither takes, it takes neither unearned advantage nor undeserved disadvantage in what it does. Okay, that deserves seven minutes, but the question then is, okay, then what are we ambitious for? So if we're not supposed to be selfishly ambitious, what are we supposed to be ambitious for? And that comes to the second answer, because Jesus' answer is glory is the thing we should be ambitious for. Glory. Which is why the next vice is vain glory. Right? Jesus said in John 17, his high priestly prayer, he says the word glory a lot. If you want to understand Jesus' relationship to glory, the gospel of John is a great gospel to read. But he says this, I have brought glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. That's how he sums up his whole ministry, his incarnation, that his, his coming death, his resurrection, all that he's taught, all of the miracles, everything that he's done, he sums up that way. I have brought glory here. Right? And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see how this is a mutuality? Glory is compatible with love because it's ever-expansive, ever-generous. Glory is something everyone can partake in without diminishing anyone. And therefore, it's compatible with eternal love. That's why the issue of honesty and humility is first, we have to get rid of the Christian corruption of honesty, of, of humility, which is false modesty. Lewis said it this way, false, false humility is when pretty people are supposed to say that they're ugly and clever people are supposed to say that they're dumb. Right? It's, it's, it's say, saying something you know isn't true to falsely make yourself less in the eyes of other people, usually dishonestly. And what that does is it, it produces the opposite of humility, which is it makes you a liar. And part of humility is being unwilling to lie. Because submitting to power wrongly is always to tell a lie also. Right? But then secondly, it also focuses you more on yourself. Because you're talking about yourself and where you go and where you fit. And you're saying you fit one would say, and you're believing something different. And, and Lewis says, and this, is, and this prevents humility from ever becoming a virtue because it introduces dishonesty in the beginning of the formation of the virtue of godliness itself. And so it can never actually become godliness because it's built on a lie to begin with. So the person isn't reveling in the truth or therefore in God 
but in a lie that they are telling in order to be servile to a false notion or to be a sycophant to some tyrant. And therefore, the rejection of humility— um, so, so if people live in that false humility long enough, you know what they do? They say, screw this. I don't have to live like this. And they assert themselves, and they assert themselves for themselves. And they see what good there is in themselves and what— or something that they want to put their faith in, something like— so they either usually become self-focused, self-glorifying people, or they point their glorifying energy towards something that isn't God and make it an ultimate it was never meant to be and thus make it an idol and begin to destroy it. You see, the word glory is kind of like the word grace in Christianity. We say the word a lot and we don't know what it means. But, so here's a definition if you want to carry it with you and learn it. Glory is that which ennobles and pleases the heart, having the limelight of attention. A limelight is the old thing that used to be in theaters, the spotlight, right? So you can see the whole stage, but you can especially see what is centered in the limelight, right? The limelight of attention that pleases the heart, that which rightly attracts concentration, animates devotion, quickens admiration, and induces imitation. Therefore, glory is the object of worship and its purpose, right? It, we, we should worship or declare or celebrate the worth of that which is most valuable, but in doing so, by giving it our attention, we seek to imitate it and become ennobled by it. And so it's a reciprocation of not just love, but development and growth. That is, humility expands the self towards the good so that it both expands the good part of the self and helps us to see, repent of, and put to death the evil parts of the self. So it doesn't just expand the self, it expands the good of the self and differentiates it from the corrupt part of the self. Right? The word vain conceit literally means empty glory. Right? Now the next verses, and we'll have to end with this, the next verses say, because the next question is service, like, right? How much do you serve? And the answer is, if you enter the life of joy, and you have real humility, in which you are seeking glory, and you embrace the ambition and the wielding of power that comes up with it, that service is just doing what you will. Right? That's why Augustine could say, love God and then do as you please. Because the heart ordered to his good will not in the next moment do something against it. So the question of like, how many people should you have over your house? How much money should you give? Should you share the gospel with that person now or later? Do you help, do you volunteer in this thing? Do you do that good? Do you say this thing? Should I really type this? All those questions are simply ordered around, are you pursuing glory? the ennobling thing that deserves the limelight of your attention, that it should be glorified in worship and known, and that you should be remade in its image, and that it should be seen for what it is. Pursue that with all, for under power and with all ambition, and then do as you please. Right? And then you see Paul comes back to both a mental reality, therefore have in your mind the same mind Jesus did. This, he's like, you guys, this is how Jesus thought, and he was God and man. But you see, the point here is also that this is doing double duty. It's also supposed to be romantic. It's supposed to draw you up into an emotional acceptance of the beauty of what he's calling you to. He's saying, don't you see? The average man or woman who, does, who wants nothing of Christ will be drawn into, for some reason or another, vain glory, the empty glory. But he says this, but Jesus emptied himself 
of his eternal glory by becoming a man. You see, God himself, the one utterly filled with total glory, Kino, emptied himself. And in emptying himself to total humility, for the purpose of divine concord with human beings, by uniting us back with him through his death and resurrection, and in serving us rather than being served, God brought glory. And he exalted or glorified Jesus to the highest possible place. Right? That's why James could say what? Humble yourself under God's mighty hand so that what? So that you could be crushed and not have a self and be destroyed as a human being and have terrible self-esteem and be wallowing in self-hatred the rest of your life and have to take antidepressants all the time. That's what it says, James 3.14, right? No, it says if you humble yourself under God's mighty hand in the right way, not in servility, not in sycophancy, but also not in rebellion and vainglory. It says this, in due time, in due time, he will lift you up, meaning like he lifted up his very son to glory because he was willing to submit himself to the good of all things. Because Jesus pursued glory, he became glory itself. So that is offered to all of us who are willing to bear true humanity and faith. That because of that same Christ, we are willing to go to humility. We are willing to do these things so that in due time, he would lift us up. And just as God showed us, he would lift up his true son in glory by offering us the right to become his sons and daughters. He has implicit in that promise the idea that he will raise us up in glory. Does that do anything for you? Let's pray. Lord, as we, um, as we pray and as we come to you, would you please help us to um, to learn what it means to be humble, to learn what it means to serve, to learn what it means to live in concord. And in so doing, would you help us to see the comfort of Christ's love, the encouragement from belonging to him, so that you build in us great bowels of emotion, compassion, and mercy towards others, so that we have the courage to live for the good, that good that is ultimately all things working together in virtue, which is what you call love so that you and your sovereign work as the non-tyrant powerful one who is never remiss that you could work all things for good through us in Jesus' name.